We believe the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is a restoration of the original Church established by Jesus Christ, which was built upon the foundation of apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. We declare to the world that the fullness of the gospel has been restored to the earth. We declare with boldness that the keys of the priesthood have been restored to man. We declare to the world that this is the day referred to by biblical prophets as the latter days. It is the final time before the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ to rule and reign on the earth. Let's, let's talk about Revelation a little bit because these sections, that's what they're about. Um, they're all the different aspects, I think, of Revelation, the kind, the, how you get it, why you get it, I think are kind of all addressed in here, starting with uh, section six. And in section six, we get some of the context behind that. It's a revelation that's dictated for Oliver Cowdery. And it's not long after he gets to Harmony, Pennsylvania. He starts working for Joseph Smith as his scribe, or working with Joseph Smith as a scribe, writing down as he dictates uh, the translation of the Book of Mormon. And Joseph Smith is using a variety of ways to translate. He uses the Urim and Thummim sometimes. And it also said in some of the, the sources that I was looking at, and those are uh, the Revelations in Context book by the Church History Department, also the Joseph Smith's Revelations, Doctrine and Covenants, um, like a study guide. And that's done by the Joseph Smith papers. They were they were mentioning how sometimes it was like too difficult or tiresome or something like that to use the Urim Thummim all the time. And so he would sometimes just use a single seer stone and put it in his hat and then put his face in his hat and he would see the words and, and dictate them for Oliver Cowdery or whoever was working as a scribe at the time to write down. And that, I'll be honest, that's always kind of been confusing to me because I'm like, how does that work? Like that just seems kind of hocus pocus, right? Bluetooth, man. <laughs> it seems a little bit strange that a, a rock would go into a hat and then you would put your face in there and, and get this revelation. But back then that was kind of more common than it is now. And including, it talks about, later on in some of the scriptures that Oliver Cowdery was used to using rods for revelation. This is probably talking about divining rods or dowsing rods that would be used to find water or different minerals. And the Lord kind of uh, vindicates this by saying, yeah, you have this ability, you have this gift, but you have the potential to get more of a gift um, for receiving revelation. But the part that, that, kind of got my attention in the Joseph Smith's Revelations book on section six. It says the revelation apparently answered questions Cowdery had contemplated, but not expressed to Joseph Smith. So he had uh, an experience of his own on his own, where he prayed to the Lord and had had a revelation given to him. And then this revelation really solidified the original one that he got. And he, he actually says, after we had received this revelation, he, Oliver Cowdery, stated to me, this is Joseph Smith talking, that after he'd gone to my father's to board, 
and after the family communicated to him concerning my having got the plates, that one night after he would retired to bed, he called upon the Lord to know if these things were so, and that the Lord had manifested him that they were true. Joseph Smith also explained that Cowdery had seen the Lord and the plates in a vision and was desirous to come and write for Joseph Smith in harmony. That's what compelled him to go to be his scribe in the first place. Now, when he gets there, a few days after he gets there, they get section six as a revelation to him. And it's interesting that he, you know, he says, uh, it's actually David Whitmer says, soon after Oliver's arrival in harmony, he wrote to me and said that Joseph had in viewed or inquired of the Lord concerning him and had told him secrets of his life that he knew could not be known to any person but himself in any other way than by revelation from the Almighty. And I think what's happening here is he's had this personal revelation experience and that compelled him to action. But maybe he still had some doubts. Maybe he still had some like questions as to, am I doing the right thing? How how does how is this going to work? Is this man truly a prophet? You know, whatever it might have been. And then section six comes in and he gets this revelation given to him. And it really reinforces the personal revelation that he got. And kind of even Joseph bringing up stuff that he would not have known otherwise. You know, and that's that to me is really cool, especially. It's kind of jumping ahead in the section, but in verse tw- 22. He says, Verily, verily, I say unto you, if you desire a further witness, cast your mind upon the night that you cried unto me in your heart, that you might know concerning the truth of these things. Did I not speak peace to your mind concerning the matter? What greater witness can you have than from God? So he's the Lord is saying in this revelation, Remember when you prayed to me before? And I gave you that personal revelation. You had the vision of me and the plates and all of that. Like, think about that. Remember that if you're questioning things, you know, and it reminds me of, of President Uchtdorf's or Elder Uchtdorf's uh, talk about doubting your doubts, right? When you start to question things, when you start to, to, when you've received a testimony, but then you hear something or you see something that casts that into doubt, don't immediately grab onto that and say, oh, that must not be true. Be willing to go back and say, well, I've received a testimony about this. And relive that experience a little bit and see, you know, I, I need to put my foundation there rather than just in not knowing or, or having these doubts. Yeah, I, I really like um, Oliver Cowdery. One, I was very impressed by his initiative. He kind of wasn't the person, he didn't seem like a person that would just sit back. He wanted to be involved and he wanted to know more, you know, and, and, and to help. And I also think it's interesting that he was prepared. He was an educated person at the time where the prophet needed someone that was educated that could help. So there are some very practical things that as we prepare ourselves, sometimes we can think, well, the Lord can make up for my lack of this or that, which he can and he has with Joseph. But also, there were certain things Joseph couldn't do. He couldn't be his own scribe. Right. And and we know we've had uh, Martin Harris. We've had Emma help. And ultimately, Oliver Cowdery. And it's funny that the Book of Mormon is so important. But we've kind of gone through two kind of scribes already. 
And we're on to the third one. And and uh, I don't know. I just think it's interesting. I like that these individuals are perfect, that they ask questions, especially Oliver, that he can have doubts, that he can... Because that happens to me when I think I've got an answer and I feel good at the time. And then over time, I start to question it. And one of the things that's important that I've started doing myself is when I feel like I've received an answer, I jot it down. I have like an app on my phone and I write an experience. And it's funny because it's, it's almost like a sign of appreciation. Anyway, one, one thing that I found interesting, though, and it's, it's very interesting to the Doctrine and Covenants, is oftentimes a lot of the sections or revelations or verses can seem identical to each other. And uh, in the in the Institute Manual for this section, there's a question that says, "Why are there repetitions in the Doctrine and Covenants?" Question mark. And then it gives some examples. In section six, verse one through nine, are identical to sections eleven, to sections twelve, to sections fourteen, and it breaks it down. And then it says, "The message in the verses is of universal importance to all saints." And indeed, the Lord has said. What I say unto one, I say unto all. The repetition stresses the great importance. So right away we begin with, uh, you know, a great and marvelous work is about to come forth, you know. And uh, a lot of times we'll, we'll hear, Behold, the field is white already to harvest. He that thrusts in his sickle, you know. And then um, in verse 2, Behold, I am God. Give heed unto my word which is quick and powerful, sharper than a two-edged sword, to the dividing asunder of both joints and marrow, therefore give heed unto my words. And it seems like most revelations, Heavenly Father is and Jesus Christ are reiterating the importance of the work, the importance of being diligent and heeding what they're about to tell us, and then they tell us what they're going to tell us, you know. And then there always is towards you know then there's the instruction and then there's encouragement and then promises if if you heed these things and i thought this was interesting uh i'm just going to read it uh it's talking about quick and powerful sharper than a two-edged sword in verse two of section six and then uh, it says the word quick in the king james version of the bible does not mean swift but rather living and alive to be quickened by the Spirit means to be given spiritual life. The word of the Lord is quick and powerful because it is a source of life, energy, and power. Many swords of ancient times had only one cutting edge. When someone decided to make a two-edged sword, the effectiveness of the weapon was increased tremendously. Now it could cut in any direction, no matter how the blow was struck. Thus the likening of the word of God to the two-edged sword is a vivid simile. Just as sharp swords can cut deep enough to sever limbs and destroy life, so the word of the Lord is powerful enough that it can bring destruction to the soul, to those who do not heed it. The word of God also has power to pierce the soul, soul as a sword and penetrate to the innermost part of man. It can cut through the error and falsehoods with double-edged efficiency. And I thought that was really interesting 
the the similes and the visual way that the Lord teaches things that we can remember. Yeah, I think like you're talking about the repetition, that a lot of times it seems like why why are these phrases being said over and over again? But you also have to think each one of these revelations oftentimes was directed at someone different. And so this one's to Oliver Cowdery, but maybe section 11, I don't know who it's to, I don't remember, but it could be to someone else. And then he wants the message to be the same for everyone. He wants to establish that as like, here's the core message of everything. Good stuff is happening. You're part of a marvelous work. Anyone who's willing to thrust in their sickle and work hard, you're called to the work. Now, let's get specific about you. And also, a lot of times these revelations, we get them section after section after section after section. But sometimes they were separated by weeks, months. And so this is a revelation that they're getting from the Lord about some, some specific question. And he wants to reiterate that message and keep people thinking about, hey, this is, you're part of this big thing. This is a bigger picture thing. Now here's where you fit into the bigger picture. Or here's where this answer fits into the bigger picture of the marvelous work. Um, so it seems re repetitive sometimes, but when you think of it in that in that way, it's it's really just keeping people focused on the main objective of what all of this is about, yeah. and keeping people remembering the purpose of it. And you know, I think verse thirty six. This is once again directed at Oliver Cowdery still, but I think that this is really the main message of a lot of these questions of concern or doubt or whatever. He says, look unto me in every thought, doubt not, fear not. And I, I, I really like that because it's so incredibly simple. And he's saying, whenever you have concerns, whenever you're worried about if this will work or if that will work, or if you have my support, or if the world is combining against you, you know, just remember, keep me in mind. Pray to me, and then doubt not, fear not. Stick with it, you know, and we'll be okay. I think it's it's really interesting how the Lord, in like for example, in verse 11, where it says, If thou wilt inquire, thou shalt know mysteries, which are great and marvelous. Therefore thou shalt exercise thy gift, that thou mayest find out mysteries, that thou mayest bring many to the knowledge of the truth. Yea, convince them of the error of their ways. Make that not thy gift known unto any, save it be those who are of thy faith. Trifle not with sacred things. If, if thou wilt do good, yea, and hold out faithful to the end, thou shalt be saved in the kingdom of God, which is the greatest gift of God, for there is no greater gift than the gift of salvation. So he's been told, you're going to know, if you want, you can know mysteries and great marvelous things, which... In the past, I've always interpreted as like, okay, we're going to know what kind of hinges the door to the celestial kingdom has, you know, or how the planetary, you know, but that's not what these mysteries and these great marvelous things. We just got done going through the Book of Mormon that told us that the Lord delights in simple things, in truths, in simple truths, and that the precious doctrines of his gospel are the first, they seem to be almost like the first casualty as a civilization begins to think they know best, they think to not follow the prophets. The first casualty are those simple things. 
and what the Doctrine and Covenants, it, it just enhances all of those things. It, it gives us more information about eternal marriage, the, the um, kingdoms of glory, the sub, uh, proxy work for this, you know, the spirit world, you know, things that they can appear as mysteries to someone who has no clue, you know, but they need to be respected and um, valued because in a way it is a big mystery to know these things because they're the first thing that uh, we lose when we decide to f to follow ourselves and not follow our father in heaven i don't know if that makes sense but i thought it was interesting in verse 15 also where it says behold thou knowest that thou hast inquired of me and i did enlighten thy mind and now i tell you these things that thou mayest know that thou hast been enlightened by the spirit of truth yea i tell thee but thou mayest know that there is none else save God that knoweth thy thoughts and the intents of thy heart. And I think that's <laughs> that's very comforting because, like you mentioned, there are certain things Joseph was given to know about Oliver. There are certain things that Oliver was told to guide him to this place, to this to to this time. And then the Savior kind of tells him, "But I know everything you're going through." And then. The, the one part I really found really interesting in this verse was verse 18 and 19, where it says, Therefore be diligent, stand by my servant Joseph faithfully, and whatsoever difficult circumstances he may be for the word's sake. Admonish him in his faults, and also receive admonishment of him. Be patient, be sober, be temperate, have patience, faith, hope, and charity. I don't know. I just think it's really interesting because... One, he doesn't set Joseph up as he's perfect, do everything he says. No, he says, be a true friend to him. Admonish him when he needs it. And also, realize he's going to admonish you. I don't know that there is better, you know, with my limited experience, advice to what a true friend is and what kind of people you should surround yourself with. Or what kind of relationship you should have with your spouse. As these kind of verses right here. The way that the Lord tells him to treat Joseph. The way Joseph will treat you. And it requires. Because we know. Spoiler alert. Later on there is a falling out. Yeah. And there's several fallings out. And most of them happen. When admonishment cannot be taken. Or. When they see each other's faults. Oh wait you're not perfect. Okay, then I'm done. This must not be true. The Lord from the beginning is saying there are going to be faults. There are going to be difficult circumstances. There's going to be a need to be patient, a need to be sober, a need to have temperance. I just, I don't know. I just, that really struck me as, as very important for us in our day. Well, I think going back to verse 15. Behold, thou knowest that thou hast inquired of me, and I did enlighten thy mind, and I did tell these things that thou mayest know that thou hast been enlightened by the Spirit of truth. So he had this revelation earlier, answered to his prayer, just himself, right? He got this, it said he had a vision of the Lord and, and the plates. But I think a lot of times also, when I receive revelation, sometimes I'm confused. Is this really an answer, or is this just me like saying, yep, I think I should do this because I really want to? Or is in in his case he might have been thinking, 
am I doing the right thing? Or did I just have a really crazy dream because I really wanted to be have this confirmed to me? And this scripture is the Lord saying, look, you did receive a revelation and it was from the spirit of truth. And I want you to know that it wasn't just something you conjured up in your own mind. Or it wasn't just you trying to confirm in your own mind that you're doing the right thing. You received this revelation by the spirit of truth. And that's probably really comforting for him to know. I got this revelation and it's not just me wanting to confirm or vindicate what I'm doing. Uh, it's actually from God, right? And that that's rarely do we get this kind of confirmation from the Lord uh, <laughs> directly given to us. When we have an answer to our prayers, it's usually that's kind of the end of it. And you can you can pray more. Is this is this the answer that I'm supposed to get? Is that what I'm I'm understanding here? But well, he's telling also, you straight up, you know. Also, it's important to know when you have doubts, not if you have doubts, but when you have doubts. Right. Where should you go? Should you go to Facebook, to YouTube? Should you go to your cousin? No, you should go to the Lord. And it's almost like the Lord has really good timing to when, and I think we also need to start valuing how important timing is. I, I like the end of this verse because in verse 33, it begins, fear not to do good. 34, therefore fear not. It's an overwhelming after receiving correction, there's this overwhelming optimism. After even being given warnings, you know, be sure you don't do this. Be sure, verse 21, I am the same who cometh. I am the light that shineth in darkness, and the darkness comprehendeth not. Therefore, what further witness should you have? And then, as 29, verily I say unto you, if they reject my words in this part of my gospel in the ministry, blessed are ye. So, you know, you're, you're being told... You're going to go do what I'm asking you to do. If this happens, great. If this happens, great. If this happens, but overall, do not fear. And I feel like, especially right now in our lives, we live in a time where there's an abundance of fear. Fear is, is I think, it's kind of become a way of getting people to do things. If they can be afraid enough, they will go do something that I want, like, it's almost like manipulative. Right. Well, the Lord's, the Lord's method here is not to say, look, don't worry about it. I, I'll get your back if anything happens. His method is saying, don't fear. And then in verse 37, he says, behold, the wounds which pierced my side and also the prints of the nails in my hands and feet. Be faithful, keep my commandments, and you shall inherit the kingdom of heaven. He's like, I've already done my part. I've already established the way for you. That's why you don't need to fear. Because I've already done the, the most difficult part of this. Now you just need to follow what I'm asking and you'll be good. And I think the devil will say the exact opposite. He'll kind of say, go out there and do this and the consequences don't matter. Come what may, you got to do this, right? And the Lord is the opposite. The Lord's like, the consequences of you doing this have already been resolved. You will inherit the kingdom of God if you're obedient. And if you follow me, I've already done this part. Look, bear witness. The wounds have pierced in my side, the nail prints in my hands and feet. You know, he's like, 
there's you are already taken care of as long as you're obedient and as long as you follow. And that's that's a very different approach than Satan, which will just basically ask you to do it and not care about what comes because you, I'm right and you're right and you're fine. You'll be you're okay. You know, it's like, well, what what evidence do you have? Well, the Lord presents evidence of the legitimacy of his salvation, of his backing. Satan doesn't. Satan is all smoke and mirrors, right? Yeah. I like, you know, verse 29, 30, and 31, because he kind of gives you some of that knowledge. He kind of says, if they reject my words, or this part of my gospel, blessed are ye. In 30, even if they do unto you, even as they have done unto me, blessed are ye. In 31, and if they reject not my words, which shall be established by the testimony which shall be given, blessed are ye. So blessed he's, are they. Blessed are they, sorry. And then you shall have joy in the fruit of your labors. Then you both be happy, right? <laughs> um, and it's interesting because, one, you if you, for me, if I read between the lines, I say, the Lord respects agency. And based on their agency and your agency, there are these outcomes. And the success in you being faithful is dependent on what you do. What they do has no effect on your blessings. But if they turn from their ways and they accept it, then you both will be even happier. Kind of like you said, like the outcome has already been determined for you if you're faithful. You know, the Lord holds his end of the bargain, right? So in section seven, we get um, an example of one of these doubts, these questions that they have, which I think is really timely because they've just been talking about when you have doubts, don't fear. Just ask me, come to me and I'll let you know. In the Revelations in Context book, um, there's a chapter called Oliver Cowdery's Gift, and it covers sections 6, 7, 8, 9, and 13. And in that, in that part of the book, um, it says, sometimes that, Sometime that same month, the two men were discussing the fate of the Apostle John, a topic, with interest, a, a topic of interest at the time. Joseph's history records they differed in their opinions and mutually agreed to settle it by the Urim and Thummim. The answer came in a vision of parchment that Joseph translated, which is now Doctrine and Covenant 7. And it's interesting because this difference of opinion was on whether John the Apostle had died or whether he continued on the earth until the second coming of Jesus Christ. And they decided to use the Urim and Thummim because they're seer stones and all of that to be able to get the answer. And um, it says in, in the Joseph Smith Re Revelations study guide book, as noted, this revelation was said to be translated from parchment written and hit up by John himself. And the text begins in the first person with John stating, And the Lord said unto me, followed by an account in which Jesus declares the respective fates of John and Peter. So it's kind of interesting because this seems kind of out of left field. Uh, and this is a lot of times how Doctrine and Covenants works, where there's a section about this specific thing and you're like, okay, cool. And we're so trained by narrative right to have the next section be directly correlated to that but the next section is kind of like this is a completely different topic right <laughs> and a lot of stuff has happened between the last section and this section but honestly this is kind of like they're reading or they're discussing they're having a conversation and they're like i think john is still alive and so the other one may have been like i i don't think so i think maybe he was taken to heaven at some point the scripture says this right yeah, well, that could be open to interpretation. And so they decide 
why don't we uh, use the Urim and Thummim and ask the Lord? We have this tool. We have the means to do it. We have the gift of revelation. Why not prove him now herewith, right? And so, so they pray and they ask about it. And um, it's interesting because the revelation they get is that verse 6, Yea, he has undertaken a greater work. Therefore, I will make him as a flaming fire and a ministering angel. He shall minister for those who shall be heirs of salvation who dwell on, on, on the earth. And I will make thee to minister for him and for thy brother James. And unto you three I will give this power and the keys of the ministry until I come. We learn in this in this section that he is here still. That he chose to stay on earth and, and continue the work of the Lord here. And, um, you know, in the conversation with Peter back in the day, in the time that this happened, it, it's the same situation as the three Nephites, right? In the Book of Mormon, where they're kind of like, well, which is which one is better or, or what what's what's more important to to assure yourself a place in the kingdom of god or to continue on working here on earth and the lord's like look they're both good both desires are good it just depends on which one you want to do and i don't know i i doubt that the three nephites were like aware of what john had done and what his request was but either way you see a pattern of as long as you're serving the lord and as long as you're seeking the best things, I don't really care what you do. You know what I mean? A lot of times we want the Lord to tell us specifically what to do. And we want a specific answer. This is what you should do with your life. This is what you should do with your career. This is what you should do with your education. Boom. This exact thing. I think I think he wants us very specifically to follow the gospel and make covenants. But then as we're living those covenants... It's kind of later on we'll hear when he tells the, the missionaries that are called, whether you go left or you go right, it matters not. Right. Just go, you know. Yeah. <laughs> I thought it was really interesting in the in the student manual. I keep calling this the institute manual. And I think it is the institute manual. <laughs> it says student manual. It talks about um, what is the power, what does it mean to have power over death in, in verse 2. It says, this passage does not refer to the fact that a person would never die, for all must die. Even Christ died, though he has power over death. To one who has power over death, death is held in abeyance according to the will of God. Such persons are called translated beings. The prophet Joseph Smith said that the translated bodies cannot enter into rest until they have undergone a change equivalent to death. Translated bodies are designed for future missions. And then there's this section that, that was pretty interesting. How has John prophesied before nations and minister to heirs of salvation? And this is kind of summarizing verse 3 and 6. Five of the books of the Bible were written by John, the Gospel of John, three epistles, and the book of Revelations. The world's most widely distributed book is the Bible, portions of which have been translated into 2,233 languages as of 2000 of the year 2000 so 20 years ago right or 21 years ago um 20 years ago anyway, it has been established estimated that between 1915 and 1999 some 3.88 billion bibles were printed certainly john's written prophecies have gone forth among the nations the apostle john ministered to the prophet Joseph Smith and Oliver Cowdery in 1829 when he assisted Peter, James, and John in the restoration of the Melchizedek priesthood. In conference 
In the conference of the church on June 3rd, 1831, the prophet Joseph Smith taught concerning John's ministry. Elder Heber C. Kimball recorded an appearance of John in the Curlin Temple. Quote, when the prophet Joseph had finished the endowment of the first presidency, the twelve and the presiding bishops, the first presidency proceeded to lay hands upon each one of them to seal and confirm their anointing. And at the close of each blessing, the whole of the quorum responded to it with a loud shout of Hosanna, Hosanna. While these things were being attended to, the beloved disciple John was seen in the midst by the prophet Joseph Oliver Cowdery and others. And that's in the Life of Heber St. Kimball, page 91. I don't know. I don't know that. I thought it was cool. It is cool, and it, it probably was a little bit like, I don't know. I I don't care how much you you know that he's around. Seeing him there was probably like, whoa, you know, <laughs> like <laughs> this is for real. Like he he really is here, you know. I I just think that's that's pretty awesome. <laughs> so then, in section eight, we can go back to some of all our Oliver Cowdery's questions and, and inquiries of the Lord in the kind of the chapter heading of section eight gives a little bit of context as well. It's, it's a revelation given through Joseph Smith to Oliver Cowdery. Once again, they're still in harmony. This is probably a few days later. In the course of the uh, translation of the Book of Mormon, Oliver, who continued to serve as scribe, writing at the prophet's dictation, desired to be endowed with the gift of translation. And the Lord responded him to his supplication by giving us this revelation. And it's kind of interesting because the Lord tells him that he already had, he talks about several gifts, right? Two specific gifts. And uh, he tells him all the Oliver Cowdery's first gift, according to this section, was the spirit of revelation. Uh, the same spirit by which Moses brought the children of Israel through the Red Sea on dry ground. And his second gift is the gift of working with the sprout or rod. It says in the Joseph Smith's Revelations uh, Doctrine and Covenant Study Companion book that, like many of his contemporaries, Cowdery probably used divining rods to find water or minerals, and though this gift may have been a thing of nature, the revelation confirmed it was also a gift from God. Now, I don't understand the divining thing. Um, I've seen it done. It seems kind of weird to me yeah. that this would work it's usually done with two metal rods or or a forked stick that comes to like a point and people supposedly can find water or gold or silver or something by by asking the rods questions and they'll either cross or they'll open up to answer yes or no to me that seems like i could definitely make that happen if i'm holding the rods if i want a certain outcome that being said this was a very common practice back then and is still used in some ways today when they're looking for oil, <laughs> which I think just like any gift of the spirit, there are people who legitimately have it. And there are people who use that practice for their own personal gain and that try to manipulate things for their own personal gain. I personally don't understand how this works. I don't understand why this would work, but Oliver Cowdery apparently did that from time to time. We know that Joseph Smith used the seer stone at times to try and find things. This was a common practice, a lot more common back then than it is now. And I imagine there were some people that were frauds that used this to scam people. And the Lord is confirming to 
to Oliver Cowdery, look, you have the, the spirit of revelation, which, by the way, um, I believe is one of the spiritual gifts that any disciple of Christ can have to receive revelation. You also have this gift of working with the sprout, as it's put in the scripture. But then he goes and says, you know, if you want to have the gift of translation, you can. And it comes with some, with a little bit of caveat, right? That it's not just, uh, poof, I grant you the gift, now you can do it. And he kind of finds that out the hard way. But he is, he does go to him and say, you know, here's kind of what I'm thinking. This is the the ability that I'd like to have. I'd like to have the opportunity to translate and have that gift as well. And um, in verse 10, I think it's it's really clear he says, remember that without faith, you can do nothing. Therefore, ask in faith, trifle not with these things. Do not ask for that which you ought not. Once again, trifle not with these things. He said that in, in the other section too. Trifle not with spiritual things or things of the spirit. And that's where I think it comes really important to, to remember that the gifts of the spirit are not to be used in, in ways that won't benefit the kingdom of God. They're not to be, you can have, the gift of working with the sprout, like it says. But if you're doing it for your, just for your own gain or to get famous or whatever, chances are that won't last. You know, if you use the translation, if you were to have the gift of translation and use that for personal gain or or whatever uh, to show off and become famous, I, I think that the Lord would probably say, you're not using this correctly. And just like those gifts can be given, they can be revoked, right, uh, according to your obedience. So kind of kind of some interesting stuff in this section. Yeah, I think um, I think it's funny. I think sometimes um, when we find out how something works, it loses to it loses its uh, like almost like its mystic magic <laughs> when and we we think that oh, it's not a miracle or it can't come from God. This came from science instead or, you know, like, and I, I look at it, President Nelson as a really good example where he is a man of faith and a man of science. Uh, he does the best he can and he is inspired. And I don't know if you, you know, you take the time to watch him talk about how he received a revelation for the heart stints. And it's kind of, if you look at that example, you could definitely be in a camp or think, wow, science is amazing. The medical books is what gave them this. And if you're in faith, you can think, oh, the Heavenly Father led him and inspired him to this decision. And in sometimes it's the, the answer is both. We, we are, you know, our lives are, we're so richly blessed even today. I mean, we have satellites, GPS, this Bluetooth, all these things. That we think we understand, but we ourselves couldn't duplicate them, you know. And the people that can create these things are working on so many other people's shoulders that have gone before to allow these things to happen. I, I just find it fascinating because we live in an era where if we were to pluck someone from like the 1500s and drop them here, they would be totally just blown away like, wow. What is this material plastic? What is this box that heats up your food? What is, you know, little things that we think are are just, oh, that's a microwave or that's this cuz and and it's it's just incredible. And I feel like to the Lord it must appear like that the things he does 
to us are like, wow, I cannot believe you can. <laughs> but it's funny because in verse 3 when he says, now behold, this is the spirit of a revelation. Behold, this is the spirit by which Moses brought the children of Israel through the Red Sea on dry ground. I think he's trying to tell us that just as much as you, and, and he just got done speaking to Oliver about revelation, about Hey, cast your mind on the night when I talk to you. Cast your mind on, on if it wasn't for what I've told you, you wouldn't be here. If you have further doubts, you know, come to me, you know, all these things. And that same, uh, the way you feel and the way you think that Moses did such a tremendous miracle, he used the same feelings that you're going through right now to do such a great thing that you think is like, wow, I can't believe something that's so epic you know and iconic and it's kind of the same with us we're being told if we use this same gift of revelation that even at times we can ask questions we can go seek answers and the way we get those answers is a confirmation a peace in our heart you know a clarity of mind you know that 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 you're feeling whether whether you should go to this school or that one or whether you should marry this person or not or whether you should do this hobby or visit this person or, or or bake a loaf of bread for your neighbor that feeling is the same feeling that parted the red sea and and i think that's interesting for us to think about it that way because sometimes we think oh here comes the part of the red sea revelation and it's like mm -hmm. trumpets there's a little bit of pillar of fire seven angels come down you know like no it, it was it's the same spirit of revelation which works within everyone that you have to cultivate, you have to strengthen. It's almost like a muscle. And you see that throughout the life of Joseph Smith and others is at the beginning, they need a lot of guidance and they, they have to focus their mind a certain way, you know, through the hat, through the seer stones. And after a while, they are so attuned with the Lord that those were aids. They weren't the revelation or they weren't the source of power they were aids and just like us we are also in the same kind of training with our revelations you know well we, we see how even though he's given the opportunity to have this gift of translation in section nine we see that he struggles with that it doesn't come and just oh now i can translate now i'm good to go he actually kind of uh fails he doesn't he's not able to do it that well and in section nine it explains how cowdry's failure and uh pro the lord promises you know now's not the time he'll do it later won't be now in in uh the joseph smith revelations book it also says likely dictated in the second half of april this revelation informed cowdry that he could have translated if he had proceeded correctly he had apparently begun well, but did not continue in the same manner, having not understood the process. In the section, it says, you have supposed that I would give unto you when you took no thought, save it was to ask me. That, to me, is so valuable for us to understand. Because a lot of times we're like, I need patience. I need a testimony of this. I need revelation about that. Or I need the ability to discern others. And then the Lord's like, okay, yeah, uh, this gift is available to you. And then we expect it to just be there. And we expect it to work perfectly. 
but this was a this is a process and it takes more than just asking for a, a skill or a, it, a gift it's it's interesting how it takes our minds and our heart being in the right place to invite the spirit and to have a meaningful interaction with the savior for example prayer we can say two prayers and the words can be almost identical hmm. but one can be a very powerful prayer and one can be a very vain prayer what is the distinguishing factor between those two prayers where our heart is where our mind is and how do we make uh, how do we take our hearts to those good places we have symbols we put around our home we have I don't know. I, I think like in sports medicine when when or sports psychology when when high level athletes have certain what do they call patterns that they do before because it reminds them of the time when they were training when they trained a certain thing they have kind of I don't know if that makes sense but it's well, kind it's, of similar. it's any any skill requires like a lot of practice and slow repetition until it becomes natural right it requires subtle movement and dedication to learning this is this step, now this, now this, now this. And eventually you can cut out some of the steps because you can make it more fluid. And then eventually it's one thing that you can just do. And, you know, my, the only comparison I can make, and this is, you know, because of my limitations, uh, a jump shot in basketball. There's a lot of moving parts to that. Your, your legs have to work with your arms, have to work with your hands, your wrist. Everything has to work perfectly for it to work and you can't just say okay here's the ball now shoot it you know people will one hand throw it people will launch it from their hip you know whatever and then it takes okay here's what you do with your legs here's how you position your feet here's how you hold the ball with your hands for stability and direction and rotation of the ball and eventually over time you're able to do it in one fluid motion and not even think about it and i think that that's kind of what the lord's saying when he says you know, in verse 7, Behold, you have not understood. You suppose that I would give it unto you when you took no thought, save it was to ask me. And then verse 8, But behold, I say unto you, you must study it out in your mind, and you must ask me if it be right. And if it is right, I will cause your bosom shall burn within you. Therefore, you shall feel that it is right. And then verse 9, But if it be not right with you, but if it be not right, you shall have no such feelings. For you shall have a stupor of thought that will cause that shall cause you to forget the thing which is wrong. Therefore, you cannot write that which is sacred, save it be given you from me. I have experienced this stupor of thought. <laughs> and it's oftentimes when I really, really want to do something. And it's not the right time or not the right thing for me to do. And I'll pray about it. And literally, I can't organize like my game plan of how I'm going to do it. Like, I, I start thinking, okay, well, what if I do this and do that? And I get distracted or I get like, I just can't think clearly about it. And it literally feels like it, my, my thought processes are being blocked almost. And I think it's the Lord through the Spirit saying, put your mind elsewhere. This isn't it. And it's once you start being able to recognize it, and I don't always recognize it. Sometimes I'm stubborn and want to just do it anyway. But... Once you realize, wow, that's why I can't figure this out, because I'm not supposed to even be worried about this right now. I'm having this stupor of thought, right? This is overall a good thing that I want, but it's not the right time or it's not the right way. And so I'm not able to think clearly about it. 
and he's describing that for Oliver, saying, you know, you tried to translate, you didn't prepare yourself the right way, you didn't follow the process to do this. All you thought was, I'm going to ask if I can translate. The Lord said, yes, now I'm going to sit down and translate. And he's like, no, that's not how this is going to work. And he wasn't able to. And then he tells him, you know, it's not expedient that you should translate now. That's not something I need you to be working about. Behold, it was expedience when you commenced, but you feared. This is in verse 11. And the time is past, and it is not expedient now. That must have felt a little bit embarrassing, right? I wanted you to do it then, but you didn't follow the process correctly, and now it's not necessary that you do it anymore. That must have felt like, oh, I lost my chance. But then he's like, you still have plenty to do. You you need to help Joseph as a scribe, and you'll, you may get a chance to do this again, but right now it's not necessary. And I, I think that a lot of times when we're we're trying to fit good things, albeit good things, into our time frame, the Lord will quickly show us that our time is not his time. And will correct, correct us, or course correct us in that way. You made me think real quick about section 121, verse 41 and 45. No power of influence can or ought to be maintained by virtue of the priesthood alone, right? Yeah. If I could take some liberties, <laughs> and like I always do, in verse 45, you know, he gives us kind of a recipe of, of you know, have kindness, pure knowledge, you know, increase of love, that you should act by persuading, by long-suffering, by gentleness, meekness, love, and faith. And then verse 45, Let thy vows also be full of charity towards all men, and to the household of faith, and let thy virtue garnish thy thoughts unseasonably. Then shall thy confidence wax strong. And that, that right there, I feel like Oliver and Joseph, early on, are learning to have confidence. You know, Joseph, a lot earlier, remember, we, we read, he was told by Morona, how many times, go tell your dad. Why didn't you tell your dad? Well, I didn't think he'd believe me. And then we went through several sections where he said, you fear man more than God. Uh, the essence of that is confidence. You right. need to just have the confidence in the presence of God and the doctrine of the priesthood. So I'll change those words to say, and revelation shall distill upon thy soul as the dews of heaven. Which is one lesson I learned on my mission that I'll never forget, is you cannot force spiritual things. When you try to force spiritual things, you open the door to being deceived. And that's, I don't know, that's just very important. It's always stuck with me. Well, there's these, there's two quotes at the end of the Sunday school lesson. And one is from Robert D. Hales, Elder Hales. It says, in my life, I have learned that sometimes I do not receive an answer to prayer because the Lord knows I'm not ready. When he does answer, it is often here a little and there a little. Because that is all I can bear or all I'm willing to do. And the other one is by Elder Scott, Richard G. Scott. What do you do when you have prepared carefully, have prayed fervently, waited a reasonable time for a response, and still do not feel an answer? You may want to express thanks when that occurs, for it is evidence of his trust. When you are living worthily and your choice is consistent with the Savior's teachings and you need to act, proceed with trust. When you are living righteously and are acting with trust, God will not let you proceed too far without a warning impression if you have made the wrong decision. That 
that can be difficult and you really have to try to be mindful because sometimes you just get frustrated by not getting an answer. Sometimes it feels like he's not there or he's not listening or he doesn't care or something like that. And you really have to be mindful of why am I not hearing anything? Why am I not getting an answer? That sometimes it's like uh, Elder Hale said, sometimes that's all you can bear or that you're not actually willing to follow through with this. And the Lord knows that. And he's not going to say, okay, Daniel, I need you to do this and this and that knowing that you're not actually willing to do that because then that puts you in a bad spot, right? <laughs> Instead of just, not, he won't give you an answer or he'll give you a little bit uh, of clarity. It, that is difficult. That takes some, some really good introspection to be able to understand what's going on, where do I stand, and why hasn't the Lord given me a clear and definitive answer on this? In, in my personal experience, it's, it's rarely that clear and definitive. It has happened to me sometimes that it's like, very clear, you should be doing this, or yes, you're on the right track, or stop doing that. But it's very rare. Usually it's more like, more that kind of here little, there little type answer. Maybe you ought to think about this, or yeah, you could start doing that, but be cautious, you know? And you're like, I just want direction. I don't want, I want the path all cleared out for me. I want to see the game board all the way to the finish line. And that's not... That, that doesn't bring growth and doesn't bring spiritual uh, clarity or growth at all. Let us be awake and not be wary of well-doing, for we are laying the foundation of a great work, even preparing for the return of the Savior. My dear brothers and sisters, Jesus Christ invites us to take the covenant path back home to our heavenly parents and be with those we love. He invites us to come follow me.